This is Radio Fairfax in Fairfax County, Virginia, a public access cable and internet station carried by Cox, Verizon, and Comcast. Radio Fairfax is carried by Cox 37, Verizon Fios 37, and Comcast 27 in Reston. Indie rock, hip-hop, R&B, electronic dance, classical, blues or jazz. You name it, Radio Fairfax plays it. Our content is programmed by each individual producer and not by corporate radio robots. You can catch it here only on Radio Fairfax. Good day. I am Robert Doc Barham. And we are excited to have a guest here today. His name is Ian Blake Newham. And uh, you are listening to my show today. I am here at WRLD and Radio Fairfax at Fairfax Public Access uh, here in uh, actually Fairfax, Virginia. And um, in studio today is an author, a writer, a professor, editor, and many other things. A gentleman I haven't known very long, but it comes highly recommended. As I said before, Ian Blake Newham is with us. Ian, how are you today? Um, very well. Yeah? <laughs> I'm sorry. We're going to call you Blake for the day and the rest of your life. How does that sound? I, I won't make it. any more mistakes like that. So, Blake, um, what I've wanted to do is tell the audience a little bit about where you are right now. This is one of the more interesting stories, honestly, that I've ever come across. And, uh, uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Ben Cook, is the person who uh, introduced us to one another. And uh, the story is uh, A Million Words Away. This is your current project. And uh, A Million Words Away, if I understand it correctly, is this concept of writing 12 books in 12 months. That's 12 books in one year, which is, by anybody's standard, that's an extraordinary uh, achievement and project in general. So would you tell me a little bit about how A Million Words Away came about by telling me a little bit about you and what's going on? Sure, Doc, who, by the way, um, I can attest to the audience is not a corporate radio drone or robot, an actual <laughs> real live human being with a, with a great soul. Um, I am, I have been a professional ghostwriter, a professor, a journalist, an editor, and that entire time, for the past 20-so years, I've also been dealing with cancer. And cancer was a full-time job among all my other full-time jobs. But I managed to handle that pretty much fine until I got a diagnosis a few years ago that it was in the brain, finally. And I had an oligodendroglioma, it's called. So I nicknamed him Ollie. We're fellow adventurers. And that was a real wake-up call, obviously. Especially because... Ollie is sitting right on top of language expression. So, hello, that's not a good thing for a writer to get. So, language expression, that's the center, uh, the, the center in your brain is what you're referring to. Correct. That, and the location specifically, so, uh, is, is in the forward part of your brain. Left frontal lobe. Uh, so, above your eyebrow. Right. The left frontal lobe. Right. Uh, basically, where the sort of uh, forehead and the, temp the temporal bone, right in that region? Pretty much, yes. Okay. Uh, and there's all kinds of stuff there. The brain's a pretty elastic and plastic place, but it's associated with language expression. There's also some other executive function there, some behavior stuff, some decision-making stuff. And that's obviously a – there's no good spot to get a, a brain tumor, but this was especially disturbing given that my entire identity is built around language. 
and the prospect of losing it is pretty terrifying. And so I decided that instead of just doing the ghostwriting career, which I've been very grateful for, totally honored, an amazing blessing, and a super cool job, but subsumed my own writing, my own ideas, my own stories. And there were really two me's. There's the me that was working in, with the midnight disease of creativity for years and years and decades and decades. When you say midnight disease, what do you mean exactly? Meaning the solitary confinement of creativity of the fiction writer. Ah, okay. Which no one ever knew about. So no one knew who the real Blake was, the one who was inventing all these characters, all these stories, because I was very disciplined about writing, just not publishing my own stuff. Because I was so busy trying to get into other people's voices and to get their words heard. And again, I'm super crazy grateful for that, and I'm still continuing to do it. It's also very pleasantly remunerative. But my own stories, my own characters, my own books, my own novels, my own imagination, the real me wasn't ever getting out there. And so I'm using this as a wake-up call, and I'm going to publish all 12 of those based upon notes and um, jots and outlines and everything else, and in some cases actual drafts. Uh, one book per month for the next year. The second book just came out this morning. You have it in front of you there. Yeah, I and do. And it's a pretty remarkable achievement uh, to have done this, to have made it two months so far. And the third book's going to the printer next week, and we're set to we're set to go. It's it's a lot to do, but it's doable. And um, I don't have much time necessarily to waste. So I I am sitting here with the two hard hardcover books, and one of them is the the elephants comma I. The Elephant's Eye, as in the pronoun I, and uh, Healing Star, a novel, both of which are written by you. Right. Now, I would like to back up for just a minute. You said, uh, just sort of in, in passing, almost sounded like a throwaway line, you've been dealing with cancer for 20 years. And I uh, that's the kind of thing that I think most people are not aware of that can actually happen, yep. that one can live that long uh, and can deal with cancer for I mean, 20, tw- 20 years, a decade. Sure. What, uh, what has that been like? Can you give us a window into that? I was 28 when I first got diagnosed. It was a very rare form of a slow-growing cancer, which was based in my thyroglossal duct. So a super rare, crazy, weird place. There were only 600 cases in the whole of medical literature. Is that uh, a duct? Is that located? Is that part of the lymphatic system? It is the area where the thyroid in the embryo stage and through infancy slides down a canal to wind up where it eventually winds up in the lower part of the neck. But everywhere that it slides from higher up leaves thyroid tissue and thyroid cells. And I got a rare kind of cancer, only 600 cases in the entire medical literature, not specifically in my thyroid, but thyroid cancer in this duct and so it requires multiple surgeries. I've had 17 surgeries altogether. 17? 17. Um, yeah, ending with uh, the la- my last surgery was, I just had a sort of minor spinal procedure a couple of weeks ago, but um, a craniotomy was the big one, which is a b- brain surgery, which I had in 2015. Now, I saw a photograph of that, that's, or at least afterwards, that you, you actually literally had staples there from yeah. after the craniotomy? I had 85 85 staples wow. in my skull. It was pretty Frankensteinian. Wow. Yeah, quite a thing. Uh, you learn to adjust. The uh, people who are listening out there who have dealt with chronic pain and disease, um, uh, you, you adapt. And it's not really courage. It's just what choice do you have? 
Right. You know? Adaptability. Yeah. I think then uh, I know actually in times of uh, or trials and tribulations, we, we do learn to adapt. We have to adapt. We adapt yeah. or we don't. I have yeah. a friend uh, who, his name is Izzy. He is a, a person I work with on his book. And he is the world's only one-armed special forces sharpshooter. And he's the least disabled person I know, the guy with one arm. If you're moving house, if, if I was hanging off a cliff, I would want him to be the arm reaching out, even though he's only got one. So it's sometimes not a question of adaptability. It's just a question of resiliency and, and inner strength. Yeah. And, but what choice do you have? You jump off a bridge or you, you deal with the fact that you've got one arm now? <laughs> you know? It's yeah. not, a, not yeah. a pleasant idea, but uh, I, I think <clears throat> for me, the real, that sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish and almost, um, almost a kind of a toss-away attitude. Again, there's no choice, though. But for me, chronic pain is a, is a real issue. I think people who, deal, people who deal with chronic pain can get very overwhelmed by that sensation if it's a constant, nonstop crippling pain like I have sometimes. It, can, it, can, it wears one down so that your resources, uh, it's right. like a gas tank running out almost, like your right. resource gas tank right. runs out and then you just don't, you, you don't have any more, uh, it, it takes away the adaptability and resilience. Right. It takes an enormous amount of energy and focus. Um, and I find that the, the way around that for me has been to get into a flow state, to get into the zone. So, one reason why I'm doing this, there's a few reasons why I'm doing the project. One is to leave a legacy, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that later. The other is because it'll keep my brain active and, and um, practiced and elastic. And the third is because when I'm writing, when I'm in that zone, when I'm in that flow state, I'm not dealing with any kind of pain at all. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not thinking about mortality. I'm not thinking about uh, a crippling headache. I'm not thinking about the overwhelm of all the things I need to do. I'm just at work, and that is an amazing feeling, and I, I wish that anybody out there could try to achieve that. Now, that is really interesting. Now, to me, what it would be very interesting is, so let's say that you can get into this flow state, right? And that's something you've been able to do repeatedly yes. and, uh, and successfully, and uh, what's the other word that I'm looking for here? Since uh, our theme today, uh, what we're really going to explore amongst uh, your writing is we want to talk about language, something mm-hmm. that you and I both have a love for and appreciation for. But um, that is, if you can get into that flow state repeatedly, successfully, uh, it's, um, I wonder whether or not you can map that state across to other, other areas, other contexts, other situations in your life. Does that make sense? How do you mean? What I mean is let's say that you know when you get into the zone in writing that you can move into the flow state. Well, it, it seems to me that if you can move into the flow state in that context, right, in that situation, that environment, that you have the ability to map that state, that flow state, across to other situations. I see. Does that make sense? Like I, I used to work with um, uh, some clients who were, um, they had, they were video game, quote, geeks. They love video games. And they, in the course of playing video games, this is the kind of thing where they would be, put themselves in a room and they would play for 24 hours, 36 hours straight, and they were extraordinarily resilient. And they would not let themselves be beaten. So they would play this video game, and if they got beaten, they'd get up and they'd play again, and they'd get up and they'd play again. 
till they take out all, you know, in video games, they take out this level boss, this level boss, this level boss, until they've literally beaten the game. Well, these same guys, when it came to going out and asking, uh, say, a woman for a date, um, were they would wither. I see. So in one context, they're this totally resilient human being. And yet they had learned to be in a different state in a different context. And my conversation with them was, if you have this much resilience in this situation, it's not really a, so much about the environment, is it? It's really about the state which is already inside of you. So what if you were to be able to access that resilient state by simply thinking about playing the video games, loading it up, and having that in the situation with the women? And the idea was for them to feel like if you go ask a girl out, um, she says yes or she says no, and they feel fine either way. They don't feel beaten and bedraggled and like I'm never going to ask a girl out again, that sort of thing. That's essentially what I mean, mapping across. It's an interesting theory. I hadn't thought about it before. The implication is that the expert pilot would always be an expert bowler because they could just map and recreate the state itself. I'm not sure that there's a certain number of skills involved and practical uh, things that increase confidence. So I think with writing and with the art, that I'm doing, it's a question of experience, being able to get into a zone because I have a comfort level, because I've got a level of mastery. I'm past Gladwell's 10,000 hours. Right, right. And so I couldn't, it would be difficult for me to reproduce that if I were to sit down at a piano where I have no skills. But it's an interesting theory about other states that make me anxious or overwhelmed, which I've been dealing with a lot lately, obviously. So for example, Uh, waiting for results at the doctor. That's an unpleasant state to be in. So could I, could one recreate that same sense of confidence by how how would I combine those things? How would I make that more of a writing experience? Maybe I just write it in my own head. Maybe I tell myself a narrative or make it into a story. It's an interesting idea. Well, some of this is, some of this comes from my background and training in, um, in hypnosis, hypnotherapy and neuro-linguistic programming and I found that uh, being able to map resources from one one context or one place yeah. to another can really be helpful. I mean, you're right in the sense that you know, most likely, if you are an expert writer, doesn't mean you're going to walk out and suddenly you know bowl strikes every single frame. But you will have a state of flow or confidence or those kinds of things that will allow you to probably perform better than if you walked in to that bowling alley and had a lot of anxiety and performance concerns and those sorts of things. It's a weird state to be in. It's pretty paradoxical and kind of humiliating to talk about, but I've achieved great things with nonfiction, with my ghost author clients. I've made very big deals. I've played with the big girls and the big boys in the publishing industry there, and I have not been able to transfer those skills over to my own writing. So there is some kind of deep psychological trauma involved there, fear of success or fear of failure or whatever, uh, whatever that is, it's embarrassing to talk about it because it's, it's a, it, you know, I'm 50 years old and here I am it's suddenly in this urgent situation where I've got to publish and I should have been published my own stuff when I was in my early 20s when they first came looking for me. Um, somehow I haven't been able to transfer those things and so you've given me something to think about in terms of, um, in terms of 
using the same state of mind that I approach the one with into the other. Uh, and right now what I'm just employing is this sort of action cures fear method. <laughs> um, I'm just doing it and I'm not really worried or anxious because I don't have time to do it. I've got to write a book a month. That's a lot. So sure, that, yeah. Most people don't even read a book a month. <laughs> Let alone write one. Right. Now, speaking of that, now, you did say you were a writer and a ghost writer. Right. right? And now, as a ghost writer, how, can you talk about, let's say, for example, because I have some questions about that. Sure, let's um, talk about it. How many, how many books have you written as a ghost writer? Something like 15 that I can talk about. 15 that you can talk about. Mm-hmm. All right, and... Um, now, of those, can you talk about any of the authors that you wrote for? I can't talk about authors specifically because I have non-disclosure agreements, but I can say that I work mostly with celebrity doctors. Mostly with celebrity doctors. Right, but I also do business. I do tech. I do parenting. I do psychology. I do science. Okay, so you have that's a broad number of contacts right there. That's right. really something. Right. Now, what do you find um, uh, when you are in this state, this flow state, can you, if I were to ask you, like, uh, just sort of reflect or introspect or turn within and really take a look at that flow state, what is it like for you? Because the flow state is something that many people know. Uh, they've heard about it and that kind of thing. And uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi is the author who's best I'm, known I'm for that. I'm glad you pronounced that because I can't. I had, it took me a while to <laughs> learn that one. I had to practice it in the mirror in the bathroom <laughs> just to be able to say it. But... Um, He's best known for flow and the flow state and that, that coveted state. What for you? What is it like inside? What is it? Uh, what does it feel like? What does it look like? It's almost as though some greater power has taken over, and I think that when it comes down to it, it's the absence of performance anxiety. So when it's working, people describe that cliche, which is an amazing experience. If you haven't had it, I, I urge you to do whatever you can to try to practice this so you can get to the state where time just passes and you're unaware of it. And for me, I had that for the first time as a writer when I was a teenager, and it was so amazing. And I, would, I was always very covetous of musicians. Anybody with musical skill or artistic skill, there's an immediacy to that that I craved, and I listened to music like every teenager and I just, I so wanted that. I wanted to be a, the drummer for ACDC or something like that. <laughs> okay. and, um, uh, and I realized one day, you know what, Blake, you've got that already. You have that as a writer. You, look, look what just happened. You just spent the last three nights not sleeping, working on your stuff, and then going to school. And I vowed to myself when I was about 15, I would never develop the kind of life where I would have to stop doing that. So I would find myself... So you would develop a life that you would... Where I could continue to do that and nothing would ever get in my way. And I wasn't going to worry about missing appointments or missing school or a job or work or any kind of other social responsibility. It was, it was like being a slave to my art. And it was a kind of romantic idea. But mostly I've done that as a freelancer, as a professor. I was a professor for 17 years in the SUNY system. And that's a... That's a SUNY system is... Uh, the State University of New York. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, I was able to do that and... When, I, when I'm writing and I'm in that state, I can write virtually nonstop. I, I would need to stop to, to use the bathroom, to eat, and that's basically it. And I could go indefinitely like that, and that's an amazing state. Editing is a little harder. Um, editing takes a, a different kind of discipline. But if you asked me to sit down and just write a book about 
you know, a, a mouse and a turtle, I'd probably just be able to do that without stopping. And that, that's the definition of a flow state. You're in this zone where you're not worried about, you're, it's a mastery. Um, whether or not it's working or not is, is dependent upon that, those next steps, the editing steps. So you have to turn off the editor. Right, okay. You hear this a lot too. You have to turn off the editor and allow that's, yourself to The editor to is basically like the critic, is that correct? Right, and in the rest of my life, I have nonstop vociferous critic about every, <laughs> every other thing I'm ever doing. What I'm eating, what I'm wearing, how my hair looks, uh, whether I sound stupid, whether I've screwed up this relationship, whether I'm driving too fast or too slow. It's, it's nonstop. It's neurotically Woody Allen level nonstop. When I'm writing, I don't have that. I can turn that off and put it on later after I get a very good draft out. You have to get through miles and miles of junk, of bunk, of crap um, in order to get to the good stuff. It's underneath there. It's like molding clay. You have to, you've got to get it out first. And if you convince yourself that that's the case, you can free write without worrying about whether every sentence is good because it's not going to be good. Free writing is just basically flowing. Yeah. Nine right. out of 10 of them are not going to be good. Maybe, maybe even less than that. Maybe, maybe one in a hundred will be good. However, after you do that for a while and you edit it and you do that for years and years and you get those 10,000 hours and then beyond, and then you're up to close to a hundred thousand hours, you your output tends to get better on the first draft because you've learned m- more and more. But you still have, you have to get past that fear of things being awful in order to tinker around and get something wonderful. Interesting. Okay. That's, a, that's the flow state for me. Uh, the absence of performance anxiety. Well, what we're going to do is we are going to take a brief break. And uh, I am Robert Doc Barham. You are listening to our interview, our conversation with my new friend, Ian Blake Newham. We're talking about language and the Million Words Away project. We will be back in just a bit. Keeping the First Amendment alive. We are Fairfax County's cable access and internet radio station. You are listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia's free-form, non-commercial cable and internet station. We are Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia's cable and internet station, bringing you a unique mix of genres and styles. All right, we are back. I am Robert Dot Barham. I'm here with Ian Blake Newham, and both of us apparently have three words in our names. And uh, you are listening to us here. We are at Fairfax Public Access, and it is Radio Fairfax. And um, I wanted to, we were just talking about flow and language and your Million Words Away project, which is essentially as a writer. This year, it's writing 12 books in 12 months, one book a month. And you were saying that the flow state is something that is really allowing you to do this. And uh, this, this project is really interesting to me. Now, one thing that you said earlier on that um, I'm, I'd like to ask you about is you have uh, a tumor 
or I guess is a the remaining portion of a tumor. Yes. All right. And that is located over what is known as the language center or language portion of the language processing portion of the brain? Language expression. Language processing is actually different. It's in a totally different place. Where is that? Um, it's the, the difference between them is that language expression is the ability to speak and to write. Language processing is the ability to understand. Okay. So when this goes wrong and when it starts growing again, right now it's not, and I hope to... I hope it goes a long time, but there's no guarantee it could, it could stop tomorrow. It will impede my ability to express myself, to use language in order to make meaning. However, I'll be able to understand what I read and what I hear. And so it's kind of a locked-in state of not being... Uh, I'll be able to process it, just not to express myself. And so if I can keep that alive as much as possible by practicing, by writing, by doing all this work, um, I can extend that period of time that I can go. And it could be 10 years. It could be a year. It could be tomorrow. It will happen eventually. It's inevitable that it will grow. It's a finite space. It is there enmeshed like oatmeal on a rug, the doctors say. And so it's there on a cellular level in language expression. I had some aphasia, some word-finding difficulties after the first surgery, part of which was the tumor itself, part of which was the, the kind of traumatic brain injury that surgery is. Part of it is the imbalance of them creating a hole by taking something out, so it screws up your whole sense of your whole brain's kind of balance. It doesn't know what to do with the empty space. Um, and part of it is the inflammation. And so I've spent some time in, in therapy about that, and psychotherapy or in, physical therapy both, or both both um mostly speech therapy uh but plenty of psychotherapy too the um the aphasia is mostly gone i i feel it myself most people who don't know me don't know that i've that i've got it but i do there are lots of workarounds to get to words and names and uh things like that um and i can feel them happening i can feel the wires going from place to place to place. Now, do you mind if I ask you what, what exactly that's like? Because you're because now we're on radio that people can't see. You're gesticulating with your hands right. and you're sort of gesticulating with your index fingers, the wiring. Right. I, I wind up doing that a lot. I think that um, I've been so language-oriented. I'm not very spatially oriented. My sense of direction is not so good. Um, so I have to use other workarounds. So I, I use my body to remind me of things. And I use other techniques like, for example, music. Uh, my GPS sings to me. So it'll say, in 500 yards, turn left. And it's a lot easier to remember that than it is to remember regular speech. I've never, I didn't know there were G- GPS that sang. Yeah, it's, uh, it's um, uh, a Waze has a boy band uh, mode. You can choose oh, really? US boy band or British boy band. Oh, really? Yes. So I, I was always thinking, I, I just... I should have a GPS where it sounds like somebody from, uh, you know, from the Northeast, somebody from Jersey or something like, you know, some right. real critical. Hang, hang kind of, Louis. Yeah, what are you doing? You're not going to take that, are you? You're gonna, what are you doing going over there like that? Don't do that. Oh, we're going to be completely lost. Can't take the cross Bronx at four o'clock on a Tuesday. <laughs> so if with, with that over the language center or the, the language center that you're talking about, what, um, what is the forecast that you've heard? At first, it was don't buy any green bananas um, and get your affairs in order. 
um, there was a possibility I wasn't, getting, wasn't even going to survive the brain surgery, said goodbye to my dog, my family, and everything else, managed to, thank God, survive that. Amazing treatment at Sloan Kettering, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Can't say enough about it. And then it was uh, a kind of cautiously pessimistic <laughs> attitude. Uh, I was going once a month for scans on this part that they couldn't get out. They were hoping to be able to get everything out, and they couldn't. About 15 to 20% was, was still there. And then it became gradually cautiously optimistic when month after month there was no movement. And this part portion of Ollie, my tumor, that's left is described as indolent. He's just sitting there lazily doing nothing. Doing nothing. And now I'm at the point where I'm getting my scans only every six months, which is a huge, huge thing. For is me. it possible that your 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 body can, uh, the, the immune system can, uh, that the tumor might shrink and disappear eventually? Anything's possible. It's unlikely. So the, the high likelihood is that this will eventually eventually erode my language skills and eventually kill me just because there's a there's a tumor in the in this finite space and everything in the brain is important you can't you can't lose anything so if it expands anywhere i still have some options left there's plenty of uh, non-surgical and surgical options left there's complementary and alternative treatments so there's all kinds of positive things uh things are developing all the time in terms of research with cancer especially with brain tumors it seems to be the new moonshot that people are going after in medicine nowadays. So anything could happen, and I'm hopeful. I'm just practical. I'm not negative, but I'm practical. I have a brain tumor, and it's on language, and I'm a writer. And so there's a sense of urgency here, not just that life is a finite business. Life's got a deadline. but No pun intended, right? No yeah, pun intended, right. but, but skills do too. And I think that I, I didn't think I was taking my language skills for granted, but you don't think you're you're taking your vision for granted until sure, yeah, you go yeah. blind. Yep. Um, so I'm trying to not take that for granted, to live up to the, the blessing that I have, the miracle that is language. I mean, and you're, you're a language guy. You're, you're a neuro-linguistic programming guy. So you've thought about this the way perhaps most people haven't, that you have squiggles on a page or these guttural sounds we're making to each other and we're making meaning out of that that's a, it is a, almost miraculous to me it, it is miraculous it's 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 loose meaning right and maybe we're losing something in that in that connection but we're doing that and we are moving each other and we're changing the universe by just these sounds and just these squiggles and that is an incredible incredible gift that i think very 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 few of us really recognize and now that mine is threatened, I want to make the most of it because I have some skills there. I've put some time in. Um, I think it's my calling. I think it's the reason why I'm here in the universe. Yeah. And yet I was ignoring it the whole time. I, I was not really um, I was not really living up to that blessing. Well, those are definitely the first few steps of the hero's journey right there. There you go. Right? The hero's journey is uh, the hero gets the call, and then the hero refuses the call. Right. And then the hero is forced into circumstances that exactly. sort of like you can only refuse the call for so long. Exactly. And then he's thrust out into the world exactly. to begin the journey. And then along the way, he comes across the the threshold guardians. Right. So I'm not going to wave my hand. I'm, I'm not a threshold guardian. And, and Maybe the, I am. And Who the knows? dragons. Then the dragons. <laughs> right. And so you're you're along your way right now in, in your journey. Yeah. I, I love the idea of, uh, of this Campbell-esque... Um, uh, it makes me seem a lot more a lot more heroic than I really am in real life. But um, 
but I'm writing about that. I'm, you know, put, putting together 12 books in 12 months has made me think a lot about the way we tell stories, um, how traditional they are, how non-traditional they are. Um, and the next book, the fourth book in the series, the book that I'm working on now, because the third one is already going to the printer, is very much a, a, a Joseph Campbell-esque kind of journey. It's about uh, dragons metaphorical and literal in the way that we manifest our challenges. And so, what's, the, what's the title of the third, the third book? It's called The Wise Man Says Perhaps. The Wise Man Says Perhaps. The Wise Man Says Perhaps. Um, are there dragons? The Wise Man Says Perhaps. Perhaps there are. Perhaps there's a reason why, why we have this polygenesis in multiple cultures during multiple times. We come up with the same kinds of monsters, the same archetypes for our heroes, um, the same ways of thinking about relationships. But the dragon is a great example of something that we've invented across time and space that is so specific. And it, it answers such a specific, it's such a specific manifestation of an ineffable thing. You know, it's a, it's a lot easier when you're a kid to be afraid of the boogeyman under the bed or the monster in the closet than it is to be afraid of the real serious existential stuff that's really scary, like your hatred for your dad or some trauma you went through that you can't put into words yet because you're still forming. So we create these things and they manifest. And who's, well, how is a dragon not real? What, what makes a dragon any less real than a pig? You know, it's, it's maybe realer than real. Right. Because it's representing something that we can't express. And so like God, like Satan, like all the monsters that we invent, we invent these things so that we can, we can explain the world to ourselves. And so I was fascinated with this idea about a, a kid who sees dragons and a, who's gone through a certain trauma his interpretation of that, his screen memory in a way, is that it's a dragon that's doing this damage. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And a psychiatrist's first gig as the person who has to unspool this and untangle it and kind of parse it and figure out why is this kid making dragons instead of something else? Where does that come from? Very interesting. Yeah, I know that um, with most every one of us, dealing with the uh, meaning and meaning making and these kinds of internal representations uh, actually can create a lot of havoc in our lives, it can create a lot of harmony too. Yeah. And like you were saying with dragons, you know, there's that, that metaphor of like uh, the, the tiger, right? And there's the, the tiger that we had a long time ago that we really ran from when we were hunter gatherers, perhaps or Neolithic right. era where right. we were, running from actual physical tigers. But then when we began to have a kind of thinking that was represent, really representational, where we were able to make meaning and create these internalized tigers that we were, these ideas that we right. could afraid ourselves with, right. um, then we end up sort of running from them or avoiding things or procrastinating or putting things off or right. traumatizing ourselves and that sort of thing. Right. So it's not exactly the same as the scene in Apocalypse Now where the the guy came running through the, the bush screaming, it's a freaking tiger, man. But internally we can, we can actually really right. do that. And we do that with language. Right. And I think many of us don't realize that 
we, in a sense, are, it's almost like a magical spell. Does that make sense? It's yeah. a bit like a magical spell. It is. That it's we, an incantation. Yeah, we, we, uh, uh, we cast it on ourselves, mm-hmm. and we can do that with either a greater or lesser degree of awareness or consciousness. Right. So, and one of the things about that, that I like about uh, things like uh, learning about language and uh, semiotics and uh, linguistics and neurolinguistic programming and hypnotherapy is that it uh, can help you become more aware of language and how you how you kind of create yourself, you create your world and right. that kind of thing. Now, for you, uh, this do you have any formative memories, uh, really early memories of learning language and and things like that. Do you have anything like that that's, that really stands out for you as a child? My, Writing, learning the alphabet, learning words. And my mother was clinically depressed for most of my childhood, and so I learned really early that if I could keep her entertained, the day went by pretty well. My brother was four years older, so he was already in school. My mother was on the couch underneath an Afghan, morbidly depressed, and. I would look back from, from uh, what was that show called? Captain Kangaroo uh-huh. or Sesame Street. And if I, could, if I could entertain her, if I could be a storyteller, if I could tell jokes, if I could use words to soothe her, then I was safer. And I was more loved, I think. I hadn't thought about that before, but I think that's a formative memory. I think also... So the, if I hear you correctly, the story is essentially that as a child, your mother was depressed and you learned to be able to, to create and tell stories in a sense? Yeah. To entertain? I, I became and, her... I became the court jester, the entertainer. Oh, ah, okay. And um, that's often true. My, mother was, my brother was a math guy and I was the language guy. And they sort of, they sort of pitted us against each other in that way just by labeling uh, that way. Um, I had what is now called dyslexia which was a, a stunning revelation in my 40s at some point. I was like, oh, my God, I was dyslexic. My Ds and my Bs were backwards. My lefts and my rights were off, and I couldn't figure out which shoe was which. And my mother— Did you, did you actually put, like, say, the left shoe on the right foot? Kind yeah, of thing? frequently. You did. And, and my mother and my father put an L and an R on my shoe, but I needed them on my feet because I didn't know which foot it went on. Huh. You know? Um, so, and interestingly, when I had my brain surgery— this should have nothing to do with it, but I had some major um, uh, contralateralization problems where uh, I would attempt to move my left hand and my right hand would move. Um, and it's not supposed to have anything to do with this part that they operated on, but it was a definite thing. I had it for like six days. Um, so that was formative. And then I started to write. I started to entertain other people when I was in kindergarten. And by second grade, I was winning or at least getting honorable mentions in writing contests. And then in second grade, my brother threatened to sue me because I used his name without his permission in one of my stories. <laughs> in what grade? What second grade. grade. Second grade? He was going to sue you? He was going to sue me. So I, I learned a lesson about, uh, about libel insurance. <laughs> <laughs> in second grade. Well, so with, all, with this going on now, with the, the million words away, you are going to be um, sharing, are you, you're doing something here, you're here, you're not from here, correct? I am from LA, but I have an artist in residency at an amazing place here in DC in DuPont Circle. It's called the Mansion on O Street, the O Street Museum. And they are an incredible place. 
So I would highly recommend for your people to just get to know what this place is all about. It's a 100-room mansion. It was built by the guys who built the Capitol building, the U.S. Capitol in the 19th century. And they used a lot of leftover parts, and they used all their design skills to build all these secret doors. There's 70 secret doors. It's five interconnected row houses in DuPont Circle on O Street. It's a boutique hotel. It has a rich history. It was uh, a, a brothel and a boarding house for Hoover's G-Men. It was the home of Rosa Parks for 10 years. Wow. Um, it's the home of all kinds of arts and everything else, and they have granted me an artist in residency for 2020, for which I am eternally grateful. They're incredible people there. I get to know them there. They're wonderful. And every month I'm doing a, a launch of the new book there. Um, and the next one is going to be on Sunday, the first Sunday in March. I think it's the 8th. But we'll check check that during the break. All right, all right. Um, I think it's Sunday, March eighth, at two p.m. at the Mansion on O Street, and it's an incredible place. Okay, well, we're going to take another break, and uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes. I'm Robert Doc Barham, and you are listening to our conversation today with Ian Blake Newham, and we will be back shortly. Radio Fairfax service of Fairfax Public Access in Fairfax, Virginia. We are Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia's cable and internet station, bringing you a unique mix of genres and styles. Keeping the First Amendment alive, we are Radio Fairfax, Fairfax County's public access and internet radio station. Indie rock, hip-hop, R&B, electronic dance, classical, blues or jazz. You name it, Radio Fairfax plays it. Our content is programmed by each individual producer and not by corporate radio robots. You can catch it here only on Radio Fairfax. All right, and we are back once again here at... Radio Fairfax. I am Robert Doc Barham, and we are at the studio at Fairfax Public Access here in Fairfax, Virginia, with my newfound friend, Ian Blake Newham. We're talking about language and his current project, which is A Million Words Away. And you said that you are actually giving a, a book reading, a book launch reading, uh, at the mansion on O Street. That's coming up. Is that correct? That's Okay. You actually you haven't gotten into that in great detail yet, but that is coming up. It's coming up. It's a free reading. Uh, it's the first Sunday in March. We don't know that date because we're not looking at a calendar right now, but I think it's the 8th. Uh, first Sunday in March at 2 p.m. on the Mansion Old Street, 2020 Old Street in DuPont Circle. Come on by. It is a free day of books and literature and fun and water your eggs to the tour. So this this reading, what is it that uh, what is it that we can look forward to in this reading that's coming up? Um, if I'm one of the people who comes out there, I, I haven't been to many events like this. Uh, certainly not one yet at the Mansion on O Street. So I'm curious about uh, what what I can look forward to. Not everyone will have such an urgent necessity, but remember that 
life is a deadline business and paradoxically we, we wait till we get a diagnosis like this to do those things that we know we really need to do. Everyone has those things. They are, maybe they're putting down the Oreos, maybe they're telling her you love her, maybe they're getting out of marriage, maybe they're going back to school, maybe they're leaving school, whatever they are, that one thing that if you did it well and did it consistently would dramatically improve the quality of your life, that is the one thing that we tend to not do. We get terribly distracted with all this other stuff. What is the one thing that if you did it well and did it consistently would dramatically improve the quality of your life? A question that I first heard from the time and motion expert, Brian Tracy, and it, it was meaningful to me, but it became ever more meaningful when I got a brain tumor diagnosis. And for me, it's writing. It is writing. Yeah. Well, if you, uh, let me ask you, one of the things that we talked about just briefly is, is that there is a possible expiration date. There's a deadline for everybody. Yep. And that's been uh, something that's f- sort of floating through the course of our conversation. As a writer, have you considered... Uh, writing your own eulogy would you if you did write a eulogy would what would it say i think if i wrote my own eulogy it would be very (laughs) self-deprecating so probably i'm not the best person to write it but what i would want said about me is not so much that i was a nice guy i've tried to be a nice guy I, i try to i know what my own heart is i don't know how well that gets executed or what other people would say and Frankly, it doesn't so much matter. I think my intentions matter, and I know my intentions are always, are always, uh, not not always, but ninety nine point nine percent of the time they're good and and pure. Um, obviously, I fail a lot, so that yeah. stuff doesn't matter to me. What matters to me more is the legacy I've left. Have I have I been able to change the universe in a meaningful and positive way through my gift? And if I were really good at soccer, maybe I could impress a million kids at soccer. If I were a good pianist or a good cartoonist, I don't have any of those skills. I'm terrible at everything except for this. I'm, I'm not terrible at writing, and I would love for people to say about me that I changed the landscape of fiction. I mean, that's a tall order, but it's, it's, it's no, no less than what I'm aiming for, that I have been able to achieve for others what great writers like Nabokov have done for me where I'm completely blown away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you were to be remembered for something, it is the expression of your gift in such a way that it makes the, this corner of the universe a little bit better. Absolutely. Yeah. Blake, great writer. That's all, that's all I need said. That's it. And right now there's a disconnect between my being a mid to a mid to late career novelist and the fact that nobody knows that <laughs> because none of the books have ever been published until now. And so now what I need is a readership. A book ha- is a sort of triangle where there's a text and a writer and one can't exist without the other. But you need that final part of that stool, the final part of the triangle, which is the reader, in order to make any meaning of this. Sure. Right? Just a, a books. And a, the, I, I was terribly afraid when I got the brain uh, tumor diagnosis. No disrespect to any of the people I love, but I didn't. My first thought was not about them or how I would lose them. My first thought was, oh my God, no one's ever going to read my stuff. Interesting. And and how meaningless is is that all? It's gonna it's sitting on a computer disc or in a drawer, and like everything else, someone's going to throw it out when I die. Um, that to me was completely unacceptable. So right now, I need to convert 
um, and, and, and fill in this other part of the triangle and get someone to read the stuff so that there's a connection so that I'm communicating. Well, now, um, we are speaking somewhat philosophically, and I, I tend to believe that most people have a sense of what their gift is, and it seems to be related to the things that they're passionate about and the things that they love. And I also have this sense that, that most people would like to, to express that gift, that they would like to reach a certain level of competency, if not mastery, and be able to give back that gift to the world. Right. And um, I think that's, you know, we, we hear these phrases like a dream come true, making my dreams come true, uh, the American dream, that sort of thing. What about, um, how do I say this? What about this, the relationship between um, illness or cancer and uh, the controversial concept of karma and comeuppance and that kind of thing? What's your opinion about that? This is a difficult subject to talk about. I think that it's, it's important for me to preface with, I'm talking about me here, what my own reckoning is and what sure. my own thought process is at this stage in its development. It's not about necessarily other people. So it's not putting something on somebody else or, or, or trying to say that you ought to think this way. For me, I think that there's a psycho-spiritual dynamic to chronic illness. In my life, there has been. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm conscious of this concept. I haven't mastered the solution to it yet, and I don't necessarily think it's true for everybody else. I think for me, if I were more in touch with my early traumas, if I were more able to deal with some terrible pain from the past, then I might have been able to avoid cancer altogether. Again, just for me, and I might be able to prolong my life. I think that there is no mistake that this cancer has manifested right now in my head and neck because I'm living entirely in my head. Um, I know you're a really heart-centered guy, sense it. I'm not. I, I wish I could be more, but I've lived entirely in my intellect with language, explaining things to myself and others so that I can get through life. And there's, so for me, it's no mistake. And this is, it's not so much about comeuppance or punishment or vengeance or anything like that. Uh But I think that if you plant an an avocado seed, you're not going to get a grapefruit vine, you know, (laughs) like what you plant, what you, what you reap is what you reap, what you sow. Uh Um, And what you plant, you're going to, you're going to grow. And so when you have terrible trauma, when you have great pain, when you have repression, you're going to grow tumors there's some science behind this but again i'm not i'm not insisting on this for anybody else but i think in my own life i i live by karma it is critical for me that principle it's my entire sense of spirituality is could be loosely described as karmic and so i think that i have mistreated myself i think that i've i've been mistreated and i haven't i, I don't i don't feel necessarily in a non-conscious way deserving of good health. Interesting. Okay. Now, is it possible that um, there is a way to, for you to process out uh, that, that uh, trauma or that pain and the, that, the, yeah. that those experiences, memories? Uh, I keep hearing from people uh, like the universe is trying to tell me that the only way, the, there's no way around it. You only, you, know, you only have to go through it. That almost sounds like Robert Frost. Yeah. Is it Robert Frost or is it the best way out is always through? <laughs> right. Um, so 
Maybe. There's a lot. I mean, we all have a lot. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not sure, but I think that it would be. A, it's a worthy exercise, but at the same time, um, I don't want to re-traumatize myself. And I thought at some point that I, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, and I had first started writing, I thought that I was processing my life through what I was writing, and I got to the point where I thought, "Wow, you're really living a writer's life. You're." You know, you're editing this, the high school literary magazine and you're publishing these stories and you're really young and you're not experiencing something until you've written it down. So you're now living something and watching yourself outside of it and thinking about how you would process that into writing. It's not really done and lived until you've written it, until you've made it into characters. And I thought that that was healthy. And as it turns out, I realize now that I'm 50 that in fact language as powerful a tool as it is and as miraculous a, a gift as it is, can also be used as a mask to really hide behind, to create a persona, to tell yourself narratives, to create a fiction about yourself and about the world. And it's easy to hide behind that and not ever deal with the real rawness of life and emotion. No, well, in your books, are you by any chance in the creation of these characters are, are you cuz i if you said this then i have missed it and i apologize but in your books in the course of creating these narratives have you possibly been processing out um I mean, again, these I, kinds I, of I things that that through the creation the, of- I, I assume that, that was the original intention and obviously when similar things keep coming up so for example i keep I, i'll set out to write a a great story of americana with picket fences and and huck and tom and i'll always wind up writing about child abuse Every time it comes out. So there's certain patterns that are definitely getting processed there, especially about childhood, especially about adult accommodations for early trauma. But whether that's really processing it or not in my own life, I'm doubtful at this point. I think that what it really is is a mask behind which to hide what would really be agonizing, terrible pain and reckoning. And maybe this is true for all writers. I don't know. Maybe maybe you can't get good without this. In the same way that they say that most comedians are are ultimately sad and have well, a lot you'll of pain. you'll see oftentimes with artists you, that there is a kind of um, a a quality that repeats through their body of knowledge or their right. their body of art. Their, the, all the works of art, right? Right. For example, um, George Carlin is someone who I really like his comedy, yep. and he loved language. Yep. And the play of language, right. and he really liked to uh, to stir the pot too. Yeah. I mean, he was really irreverent, and he would make he makes audiences uh, reflect and think. And he was a cultural critic, and I think in the best sense. I, right. I think that I some people might look at Carlin and think of Carlin as something as a misanthrope, but I don't think so at all. I think he, he was little, someone who got a little cranky at the end. And definitely towards, towards the end. <laughs> yeah. But for many years, I mean, he was prolific. He came yeah. out with an hour of, of stand-up comedy for HBO each year for a long time. And Hugely influential when I was young. Yeah, as yeah for myself as well. Just knew every routine. Or like uh, in the case of uh, an, an author who I like his work, with, it seems he seemed to have, like Carlin, many of uh, the, he would repeat these themes mm-hmm. through the course of his his uh, art, his works. His uh, the novelist Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. and he seemed to, uh, with each new book, exploring this uh, 
uh, I guess, philosophical, metaphysical, epistemological questions like what really is reality? What really, what is reality? And what does it mean to, to know what reality is by creating these other realities and that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, well, for you, uh, you will be coming up on uh, this book launch, and I'm happy to know that you're going to be coming back again uh, not just next month, but hopefully um, each month after that for quite some time. Yes, sir. If uh, Before we wrap up today, because we have just a, a minute or so here, a minute or two, is there something that uh, you'd like to share with your, with the, your listeners, um, your audio uh, readers, so to speak, that you haven't already? Yeah, don't wait. Don't wait for a diagnosis like mine. Don't wait for them to tell you not to buy green bananas. Go and do those things that you really must do. And if you can't think of what they are, do things that are sensory. Bite into a cold tangerine. Go play in the sand. Pick up your grandkids. Um, make love. It's about passion, not precision, like, like drumming or good sex. <laughs> do something like that where you're not living just in your head, where you are in touch with the joy and the miracle of just being alive because tomorrow it could end and anvil could fall out of the sky and don't wait. Just start today. Start today. Start today and create and express. It sounds like what I'm Assume saying. Assume the Share tumor. Assume the tumor now Assume because tumor. something, something will happen to you. Um, again, not to be pessimistic, but just to be practical. Assume the tumor and start it now. Do you, do your, do your major project and live up to the blessing of your consciousness today. And the million words away, uh, project is is actually can be found on the web at a million words dot com. Is that correct? That's right. All right. Uh, Ian Blake Newham, thank you so much for being here. I want to invite you before uh, anything else, before we go anywhere else, to come back again uh, before too long. I wish you the best of luck with your Thanks, uh, 12, no- 12 novels or 12 books rather in this uh, this calendar year. And I am Robert Doc Barham. Thank you guys for tuning in. You've been listening to me here at Radio Fairfax at Fairfax Public Access, and we will talk again soon. This is Radio Fairfax in Fairfax County, Virginia, a public access cable and internet station carried by Cox, Verizon, and Comcast. Radio Fairfax is your station, so use it. Listen on your television, computer, or mobile device. Radio Fairfax. What you want to hear, where you want to hear it. Radio Fairfax, the go-to station for a truly unique and rewarding listening experience. Made by producers who want to share their love of music, talk, or ideas with you. Free of commercial corporate radio control. Radio Fairfax, your voice, your station.